Well, it's good to see you all. Welcome. Um, if you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm also one of the pastors around here. And it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. Here at Pickle Baptist, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, one verse at a time. And so we have found ourselves in Luke, chapter 10. Picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. And as you're turning there and finding your way, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, grab one from the pew in front of you. You'll find Luke chapter 10 appearing in the church Bible on page 869. As you're finding your way to Luke chapter 10, I just want to say how grateful I am to the Lord and to you, members of Pickle Baptist Church, for allowing me the privilege to serve as one of your pastors, uh, that I get to read the Bible, study the Bible, preach the Bible, and teach the Bible as a job. It doesn't feel like a job at all, and it is the greatest honor that you show to me, so I just want to say I love you and thank you for that privilege. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read uh, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, verses 25 down to 37. Then I will pray for the Lord's help, and we will get to work a little bit at a time through this passage. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when, you, when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, would you send us now your Holy Spirit to understand what it is that we read, that we would see the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ in these verses, that we would be able to see and understand the meaning 
and that we would be able to apply it to our own lives, that this seed of your word would find good soil in our hearts, that it would take root downward and it would bear fruit upward to the praise and to the glory of Christ and Christ alone. And God's people said, Amen. Well, this evening, as you know, a bunch of people will tune in to watch a football game. This year's Super Bowl is hosted in Arizona at State Farm Stadium. And one of the quarterbacks in this football game, actually, and one of the, one of the coaches in this football game, just so happens to be sponsored by State Farm. And this has got some people... Bengals fans mostly, to conjecture whether or not the National Football League is rigged. Now, I don't know if State Farm rigged the NFL playoffs so that the Super Bowl would be played at their stadium, and that's really not my concern with State Farm. I do have an issue with State Farm, and it's with their slogan. Do you know what it is? Of course you do. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They're nothing like a good neighbor. (laughs) I have no issues with them as an insurance provider, but that slogan, I take issue with that. Do you pay your neighbor money every month just in case your car breaks down? Do you pay your neighbor monthly just in case a tree branch falls on your roof? No. And if your car breaks down and a tree branch falls on your roof and your neighbor helps you, he or she helps you not to receive payment, but because they are, shall we say, a good neighbor. So State Farm is nothing like a good neighbor. The passage before us today on the surface seems like it's about being a neighbor. And in some ways, it is. But if you look closer at the text before us, I think that you'll see that this passage actually has more to do with being a Christian than being a neighbor. As good Bible students, we need to pay attention to context And this passage opens with someone asking a very important question to the Lord Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Whatever else we learn about being a good neighbor, behind that point is the far more important point of what it takes to go to heaven. And so here is my summary of this text this morning, that God has granted eternal life to sinners like us through Jesus Christ, who in turn love him with everything and show mercy to anyone who's in need. That God has granted eternal life to sinners like us through Jesus Christ who, because we've received eternal life, we in turn love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. We help those who are in need. We'll work through this text by considering the three main questions raised in this text. 
They'll serve sort of as our outline today. The first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we'll look at that. The second major question raised in this text is, who is my neighbor? So we'll spend some time on that. And then finally, the last question, which is who proved to be, what is a good neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? So that's how it's teed up this morning. Let's read verses 25 to 28 again as we consider the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus, to put Jesus to the test. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus said, you got it right. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, there's several things that we need to note about this interaction between the lawyer and Jesus. Something should feel off to you. It's meant to. So we'll slow down and we'll dig in. But before we dig in, let's introduce the characters. There are two in this passage, a lawyer and the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a lawyer, not like a Perry Mason kind of lawyer. This is a, an expert in the law, an expert in the Bible. So think of this person as like a theologian, somebody who is an expert in knowing the law of Moses and applying it and interpreting it. This is a Bible Scholar. So sometimes in the Bible, this, this kind of person is called a scribe. The other character in the story is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, God from God, light from light, wrapped in human flesh. A lawyer stands up and he asks a question of Jesus. Now Luke tells us that this isn't really a question as much as it is a test. The lawyer knows the answer to the question. He's asking to see if Jesus knows the answer to the question. And so he says to Jesus... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, alarm bells ought to be going off in your post-Reformation Protestant brain. Right? You should be loading the five solas in your pistol and being like, Do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is no do. It's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory of God alone. It's the five solas. I even bought a t-shirt that says it. So so that's a problem with this question. Well, there are other problems with this question. What must I do to inherit? Inheritance isn't something you earn by doing. It's something you earn by being. You are a child, therefore you receive an inheritance. So whatever the reason this lawyer is asking, maybe this lawyer is asking the question like, what do I have to do to get God to write me in the will and give me eternal life? I don't know his reason for asking it this way, but it is a weird question. However, it's a question that gets asked again in Luke's gospel. Later on, when we make 
our way to chapter 18, Jesus gets, gets asked this very same question by a first century Jeffrey Bezos kind of guy. How do I inter- inherit eternal life? So there are problems with the lawyer's question, which, as I mentioned, isn't really a question. It's a test. And look how Jesus responds. He responds to this question in classic Jesus fashion. He sees straight through the question and sees the man. And Jesus answers the question with a question and says, well, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? You're the Bible scholar. You tell me. So Jesus points the Bible expert to the Bible. The Lord knows that the, the answer is in the Bible. And this tells us a lot about how our Lord views the Bible. The Lord knows that his word, and it is his word, will not only diagnose the lawyer's problem, but it will provide the answer that the lawyer needs. That's that's how God built it. It was written by him and it was written about him. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is in the Bible. Read it. I guess I should just say at this point, if you are a guest with us today, if you're not a Christian, very glad that you came to church today, you should be asking the very same question that this lawyer is asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Friend, it's the most important question you'll ever ask. And might I suggest to you that you take the Lord's advice that he gave to the lawyer, that you read the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take one of the Bibles that are provided to you. Go ahead and take it home and read the rest of the Gospel of Luke this afternoon. Whatever questions you have, just go ahead and write those down. Come back next Sunday morning. We'll be gathering in the same place at the same time. Find someone who looks like a regular and ask them to meet with you and to begin explaining to you what, the, what you need to do to inherit eternal life. And friend, these are, my, these are my friends, and I promise you that they would love to meet with you. They'll probably tell you something like, well, you've broken God's law. You're a sinner. You're under the judgment of God. But God, in his love, sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And when you turn from your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus, trusting that his life, his death, his resurrection, that Pastor Matt mentioned earlier, is enough to pay for your sins, when you believe in him, confessing him as Lord, you'll be saved. Friend, keep asking that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And don't leave church today without resolving to find the only right answer to that question. Well, Pickle Baptist, let me remind you that whatever question, the Bible has the answer. In our church's statement of faith, we say this about the Bible. We say that the Scripture contains all things necessary for God's glory, for the salvation of sinners, for all prescriptions for life and godliness. We say that in matters that are not expressly declared in the Scriptures, the answer to those questions can be deduced from the Scriptures. So the Scriptures have the answer. Are you feeling aimless in your life? 
Are you feeling pressured in your life? Are you facing life decisions that you're not sure about what the Lord's will is for you? Do you feel overwhelmed or are you anxious about something? Church, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. Feast upon him in this this book. If you don't already have a regular Bible reading plan, find one. Go on the Church Center app and download the church's Bible reading plan and read together with us. Now, last Sunday, I mentioned getting your heart happy with God. And uh, last week, uh, one dear brother met with me and said, Pastor, thank you for that message, but you didn't tell us how. And I'm deeply grateful for my brother's gentle rebuke. So Pickle Baptist, please forgive me for that oversight, that deficiency in my preaching. But here's one way that you can get your heart happy in your God, in your daily Bible reading. Find something precious and beautiful about the Lord Jesus in your reading and write it down. Make a note of it in your phone. Put it on an index card and stick it on the dash of your card or on your refrigerator. And throughout that day, meditate upon that beautiful truth about who God is in Christ and watch as your spirit begins to rejoice in your Savior. That's one way you can get your heart happy in God. Well, I digress. The lawyer answers his own question in verse 27. Jesus says, what's what's the Bible say? And he's a Bible expert, so he knows the answer, and he gives it. I mean, this if he's a good Jew, he recites a portion of this answer every day in a prayer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, from memory. He's a good Bible student. He says, if I do this, love God, love neighbor, I'll go to heaven. This is what I must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, much to our chagrin, yes, that's the right answer. That's all you got to do. And then he quotes from Leviticus, do this and you will live. Now, if, if, if we didn't know better, it would sound like Jesus is endorsing legalism. Do this and live. I don't know about you, but I don't want to turn my five sola gun on the Lord's own teaching. Leviticus, Jesus, are you kidding me? I mean, this is way better texts. What about Genesis 15? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as... Haven't you read Paul, Jesus? Is Jesus teaching this lawyer salvation by works? Sure seems like it. And didn't the apostle Paul come along later and say that no one will be justified before God? No one will be made right with God by keeping the rules? So we have to ask, is Jesus teaching something different than the apostle Paul? I think you know my answer. No. Just consider for a minute 
the lawyer's answer. He says, here's how I will attain eternal life. I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And then love my neighbor as myself. That word for love, that's like the highest form of love. That's the lavish, sacrificial, unreserved kind of love. So love God like that, love neighbor like that, then go to heaven. And when Jesus says, do this and you will live, he's telling the lawyer that if you love God perfectly, you will inherit eternal life. He's pressing the lawyer to take a look at himself. Have I loved God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength and all of my mind? Have I always loved my neighbor in the same way I love myself? Jesus is pointing the lawyer to the law because this is the point of the law. To point to all the ways we have failed to keep the law. The Bible says, this is a big book. The Bible says if you fail in one point, well, you might as well have failed in all the points. And the problem is not with the law. The law is perfect. It's God's law. The problem is with us, with our ability to keep God's law. So where should that leave this lawyer, this Bible expert? Without hope. For he is, as we are, a lawbreaker. He is a sinner. He is under God's judgment for his lawbreaking. For no one has kept God's law perfectly. No one has loved his neighbor as himself as we will see in a minute. So Pickle Baptist, do the math. Where does that leave us? It means no one can inherit eternal life. Does the lawyer get this? Apparently he doesn't. He sort of tries to wiggle his way out of it. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, hang on to that phrase, we'll come back to it, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? That word, justify, that's a big old Bible word. It means to be declared righteous before God, a have right standing before God to be innocent. It means to, be, to, have been, to have kept the law of God perfectly, comprehensively, without fail, without compromise. 
And this lawyer wants to justify himself. And this is a problem because justification is a declaration by God. It's not something you declare over yourself. You can't declare yourself justified any more than you can declare yourself innocent in a court of law. That's not your job. Only the judge looks at the evidence and declares innocent, justified. But this self-justification is something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried to do. They tried to justify themselves to their fellow man, purposely ignoring justification before God to appear righteous before others. And this is what this lawyer is doing. He's seeking to justify himself. And notice in verse 29 how he just skips over the first part and goes right to the second. Who is my neighbor? So there's teaching going on in Jesus' day about God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the teaching is that this command of God only applied to fellow Israelites. If you were a Jew, it applied to other Jews, as long as those other Jews weren't pretty bad sinners. So you were under no obligation to love your neighbor if your neighbor was a Gentile or an outsider, or if your neighbor was a pretty filthy sinner. And so this lawyer is seeking to justify drawing boundaries around his compassion for others. He's attempting to limit the extent of his obedience as a way to justify his disobedience. By saying, well, who is my neighbor? Where do I draw the lines, teacher? And Jesus offers his answer in the form of a story, what we call a parable. A parable is a story that Jesus tells with a lesson about the kingdom of God. So let's read the parable of the Good Samaritan in verse 30 and following. Jesus replies, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him, and they beat him, and they left, and left him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. A couple of bits of background that might help us understand what Jesus is communicating with this parable. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles or so. Jerusalem sat like 2,500 
feet above sea level. And Jericho, one of the lowest places in the region, was almost a thousand feet below sea level. And so it was a journey from Jerusalem descending 17 miles of descent, about 3,400 feet, through rocky, devis- desolate, craggy places. It was well known to be a rather dangerous trip because the terrain lend itself to robbers and thieves who would hide out and ambush passersby, which is what happened in this parable. An unnamed man is traveling from Jerusalem, the right center of worship of God, down to Jericho, and he falls among robbers. Jesus says they strip him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they leave him half dead. And Jesus says then, by chance, a priest is going along that way, sees him, and he passes by on the other side. Now, priests were holy men, men of high standing in religious society. You read a little bit about priests in your reading through Exodus last week. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Priests were the highest standing of the Levites. They oversaw religion in Israel. They would administer the rituals of the sacrificial system. They taught the law of God. Jesus says this priest sees this man who's been stripped and beaten and left for dead. And Jesus says he just passes by on the other side. Now, this priest, he may have excused himself for this behavior because he was a holy man. And as a holy man, he was not permitted to touch dead bodies. But he doesn't know. Maybe this man's dead. Also, what if it's a trap? I mean, what if this man in this ditch is working with the thieves? How do I know that if I don't go over to him and start helping him, I won't get pounced on myself? Well, whatever the reason, then Jesus doesn't give us the reason. The priest neglects to care for the man. And then he says, likewise, a Levite comes to the place. Levites were the servants of the priest, the lower class of holy men. But the Levite does the same thing. He sees the man, and he passes by on the other side. And neither is he justified for his neglect in caring for his fellow man. And then we come to verse 33. A Samaritan comes to that place. And when he sees the man, he has compassion on him. Now, I think uh, it's likely a good bit of the impact of verse 33 is lost on us. The, in the ethnic hierarchy of the day, Samaritans were the lowest of the low. They were less than a Gentile and hated by the Jews. They were half-breeds, 
compromisers. They were Israelites at one point who had sold their birthright to the enemy, intermarrying and, and, and capitulating to the pagans, even seeking to move the center of religion from Jerusalem to some other place. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. We call this parable the parable of the good Samaritan. And that title would have been provocative if you were a first century Jew. There were no good Samaritans. It's an oxymoron. Like living dead. Or open secret. Or a good Michigan fan. Seriously, this would be like making Jim Harbaugh the hero of a story told to OSU fans. It'd be worse. And like, like the other two, this Samaritan sees the man in his condition. But unlike the other two, the Samaritan is moved with compassion toward the man. And in his compassion, Jesus says, he goes to him. He binds up his wounds. He pours on oil and wine, oil to soothe his wounds, wine to disinfect his wounds. He takes the man who's been beaten so badly and he sets him on his own animal so that he doesn't have to walk. And he takes him to an inn where he takes care of him. Jesus says on the next day he pays the innkeeper Two denarii, and a denarius was like one day's wage for a laborer. It would have been plenty of money for the man to lodge at the inn for many days. And then he tells the innkeeper, here's my credit card. Whatever it takes to take care of him while I'm gone, charge it to me. And when I come back, I'll make everything right. Huge expense. Huge inconvenience. The Samaritan loved this unnamed man like he loved himself. He did for the man what he would have done for himself had he fallen among robbers and been stripped and beaten and left for dead. He would have found his way to an inn. He would have paid for his lodging. He would have paid to have his wounds taken care of. And he would have done so at whatever expense to himself. And this is what State Farm gets wrong. They might be a good insurance provider, but they're not a good neighbor. They're motivated by profit, not by compassion. And that's okay. They're a business. But the Samaritan took care of this unnamed man out of expense, his own expense, out of his own inconvenience, simply because of his compassion. And this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It's expensive. It's inconvenient. Now you need to understand that Jesus means for this man's example to be over the top. He wants us to see 
how lavishly the Samaritan loved this unnamed man. It involved a disregard of social and ethnic boundaries. It meant showing expensive compassion, showing mercy on someone, the only qualification being their need for it. So love for neighbor sees a need, moves toward the need, meets the need, whatever the cost. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And now remember what Jesus is saying to this lawyer. Do this and you'll live. You want eternal life? Do this. So now, having the terms of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself defined, Jesus now turns back to the lawyer and he asks our third question. And this is where we'll land. Who proved to be a neighbor? Let's read verses 36 and 37 again. Jesus says, which of these three lawyer do you think proved to be? to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, well, obviously the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, yep, go and do likewise. Now remember, remember, I said everything, it feels a little off. Part of the reason it feels off is because this answer Jesus gave isn't really an answer to the question that was asked. Remember the man asked, who is my neighbor? That's not what Jesus answers. Jesus answers, who proved to be a neighbor? See, the man's question was about who he was obligated to love. Where are the boundaries of my love? Is my neighbor those who are close to me in proximity? Is my neighbor those who are like me in my culture? Jesus says, that's the wrong question. Instead of thinking about who is your neighbor, you should be thinking about being a neighbor. And in telling the parable this way, the Lord has completely upended the whole social system that would give rise to self-justifying questions like, who is my neighbor? It's a non-issue. By making the unnamed man the object of a Samaritan's love in a story told to Jews, Jesus was dismantling the ethnic matrix of who is and who isn't my neighbor. He is effectively erasing man-made boundary lines around love and compassion and mercy. So 
What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means that when you see someone in need, you move towards them in that need and you seek to meet that need no matter what the cost. Show mercy, care for those in need. So Jesus, again, is saying, do you want eternal life? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep every part of the law perfectly, comprehensively, without fail or compromise. Love your neighbor in the same way this Samaritan loved this unnamed man. Do this and you'll live. And so I hope that you're starting to see the problem that is raised by this text. Who among us loves God like that? Who loves anyone like that? If that is the standard for eternal life, and it is, then we're doomed. It's too lavish. It's too expensive. It demands too much. I mean, come on, God, let's be reasonable here. There's no wiggle room in that word all. It's not love the Lord your God with most of your heart and most of your, your life. And do your best to love your neighbor. It's, it's exacting all. You leave one part out and you leave everything out. And so what are we going to do? We're just going to hope that God grades on a curve? We're just going to hope that like God's going to draw some arbitrary line between those who are in and those who are out. And we're just going to hope that we're on this side. We're always, always going to fall short of God's expectations, God's demands. But you know what? That's the point. You see, Jesus and Paul did preach the same gospel. That justification is not by self-declaration or self-attainment. That justification is truly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Because no one in this room has loved their neighbor like this Samaritan. However, a great many of people in this room have been loved like this Samaritan. Who, Piqua Baptist, do you know when leaving right worship of God has been beaten, stripped, and left for dead in their trespasses and sins without God and without hope in this world. Is the unnamed man not a description of us? And who do you know, Piqua Baptist, 
who came to us and saw us and had compassion on us and moved toward us and bound up our wounds and gave us eternal life. Who do you know who cared for us at great expense to himself? Christian, you have not loved God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And by that standard, you will not inherit eternal life, yet you have been shown the lavish love of the one who has loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who has loved his neighbor as himself. And by looking to Jesus Christ in faith, you have been credited with his righteousness, justified by his grace on the basis of his righteousness. And having received the gift of his righteousness, you are now free to spend yourself on the glory of God and the good of others. You who have received his unqualified and unbounded grace are now empowered to be the good Samaritan. You who have received his mercy can now show his mercy. Because your Savior has not placed boundaries on his love for you, you are free to erase the boundaries that you've drawn around others, that his compassion for you becomes the infinite well of your compassion towards others. And this is the point the lawyer missed. Keeping God's Commandments is not a way to life. It is the way of life. Because you have received compassion and mercy, you can go and do likewise. Not because doing so earns you eternal life, but because in Christ, you already have it. You can show compassion without qualification. You can show mercy without limitation. You can forgive others without strings. And when you feel yourself pulling back, limiting your own obedience to the call of God, to justify disobedience, Christian, you can look to Christ and you can remember how he came to you and saw you, had compassion on you, healed your wounds and paid your way to eternal life. You can look to Christ, and you can be a good Samaritan. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we see in ourselves a likeness to this lawyer. For Lord, like him, we have sought to justify our disobedience. We've sought to limit our obedience. We've looked for every reason why we don't have to love our neighbor like this. Please forgive us.
And Father, will you reveal to us your Son and let us see the beauty of his love and his mercy and his compassion. Let us see him in saving us. And by seeing him, may our hearts be changed by the power of your Spirit. Give us hearts. Give us lives willing to spend and be spent on the good of others and the glory of God. Make us a people justified by grace who are moved with compassion towards those who need mercy. Do this so that Jesus receives all the credit and all the praise from our lives. Amen. Would you please stand to your feet? After having confessed our sins to the Lord, we now receive an assurance of pardon. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please take comfort in these words quoted already from Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool.